Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Artists are upstairs. Sometimes they leave their compressors on, compressors leak, and go off at inappropriate times. Hi. Oh, people have been messing with this. Okay. Um, Jeremy, when, when, you, uh, when you were doing your offering thing, um, made me realize that I, it's first Sunday back and I do not have a Ted Lasso reference, and it's going to make me sad now. Um, but it's okay. We'll get through the morning. Uh, he talked about being a goldfish. Anyway. And I'm already off. Good morning. Um, it is uh, it's good to be back with you. I have not um, preached since Mother's Day, and uh, I want you to know that I am resisting pulling in three months of illustrations and stories. Uh, so hopefully we are out before the Cardinals are eliminated from playoff contention. And um, no, but it was uh, it was really a great gift to have some time off to kind of refocus and recalibrate a little bit. Uh, just. To, just a tumultuous time in, in our world uh, and uh, in ministry especially, and not that necessarily things have, have gotten easier, but it's nice to be able to take a deep breath. Uh, and um, I am uh, grateful, I am so grateful for our uh, elders who, who filled in, especially preaching and, and otherwise over the summer. Um, they are a gift to refuge for sure. Uh, I'm grateful for them in the way that they shepherded me and um, pushed me every w- when you have to have hard conversations and you're worried about friendships and the way that people are going to do things. I want to tell you that our our your elders did everything the way you would hope a good friend and co-laborer would do, um, and um, that was encouraging to me. Uh, and so that was great. And then to have some amazing friends come over the last month uh, and talk about hard things, and then I didn't have to. So, you know, you, can go, you guys can either be mad at them or, or whatever. Uh, I used to have a pastor friend that anytime he would go on vacation, he would have really bad preachers come in so that people would miss him, um, which I thought was very clever. Uh, and now I spent the last month going, I wonder if I could get these guys to just on a rotation to come back and, uh, and still find a way to get paid for that. Um, but, uh, no, they were great. Uh, originally, we were going to have another guest preacher this week, but that had kind of fallen out of sorts a while ago. Uh, so, um, at least for the time being, so I'm coming back a week and a series early. <laughs> uh, so I was going to do the hard things that, um, but I'm not going to. Yeah, good timing, David. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I started going, and then, and then I started going, and then I was like, okay, we're going to go a different direction this morning. So, um, so I'm going a different direction this morning. My, my pastor, when we were in seminary down in Fort Worth, uh, he was amazing. He was a gem and, and still is. He's retired now, but he is incredible. Uh, a very gifted speaker. He was a history major, which I can think of two professions now that are good for history majors. Uh, one of them is preacher because uh, he, uh, he knew a lot and he was fantastic. And he was a, the pastor of a big church in Texas. And what was obvious about him in his pastoring and in his teaching is that he loved 
Jesus more than he loved the size of his church. And that's saying something um, when you're a pastor of a large church in Texas. And he would often say that if something were happened to him and he was stranded on a, on a deserted island somewhere and he could only take one book, he would take the Bible. And if he could only take one letter from the Bible, he would probably take Romans. And if he could only take one chapter from the book of Romans, that he would take Romans chapter 12. And that's hard to argue against. I think my preference would probably be Colossians 1, but I could definitely get on the Romans 12 hashtag and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, so uh, we usually use Romans 12 when we open up our essentials class. We'll walk through that, that chapter because it paints a beautiful picture of really like if you want a summary of what, what is the Christian life to look like both personally and communally, I really, it's hard to think of a better chapter than Romans chapter 12. And he just, you don't need a whole lot of commentary for it. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and so... Uh, today, as we're coming back, um, just to kind of catch a deep breath, I'm just going to share some reflections from my sabbatical going through Romans 12, uh, some of the things that I just mulled over, um, and hopefully we'll be encouraged and even get some direction from Paul's words to the church in Rome. So let me read this, uh, Romans chapter 12, we're going to have it on the screen behind us. If you want to follow along, there's some pew Bibles uh, and I don't know what page it's on. It used to correlate with my book, with my, with my Bible, but um, I got a different one, so it's not there. But if you want to turn there, you can. Romans chapter 12, Paul writing to the church at Rome. I'm going to read the whole thing. So if you want to follow along, really, this just paints a beautiful picture of what the church is, what, what the church is supposed to be. All right? I appeal to you, therefore, I'm going to add just a little bit of commentary as we're going through it. That therefore is important. We'll get to it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. Members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We have these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let's use them. If, if it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, if it's service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul is painting a picture of how we relate with other followers of Jesus and not to consider ourselves more highly than we ought and not to consider our gift the gift. Okay? And it's a, it's a beautiful picture. Let love be genuine. Abhor what, not who, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and for you competitive types, outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Okay, Paul, well, then what do we do with the outside world, the enemy? What do we do with Rome? Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, again, not thinking yourself more highly than you ought, but associate with the lowly. It's not fix, but don't consider yourself more than. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but get thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat or something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is refining. That is not like ha, 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 ha. Okay? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. And we can respond by saying... Thanks be to God. Now, I struggle with a bit toward um, idealism. <laughs> and I read this and I evaluate, like, are we doing all of these things? Uh, the good news is the Roman church was not doing all these things. That's why Paul had to write this letter. But this is, this is beautiful, isn't it? Does anybody else think it's beautiful? I think it's powerful. I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, a lot of times we talk about how hard the Bible is to read, and there are definitely, definitely things that are hard to read in the Bible, and you're like, well, what's going on here? But I mean, this is pretty straightforward. This is a pretty good description of what it looks like. Um, and, and there's a lot to unpack before we get to Romans 12, uh, which we'll do that in a second, uh, but, but I, I think this just seems to make sense. This is, this is the church, and so on the one hand, I want, to, I want to take just take a deep breath in and, and soak in that. This is the vision of the church. And on the other hand, I read this, and then I look around uh, at the current state of the church, and then I read this again, and I'm like, I wonder if we're reading the same Bible. Possible that we are called to live at peace with everyone. And when it's not possible, when it when it when it comes down to persecution or when enemies abound. That we're called to feed them, give them water if they need water, even our enemies. Not to curse, but to bless them. And then we're called to trust God with the repayment, uh, with, with justice, right? That God will repay, uh, that God will, will stand in judgment, which is a great relief that, that we don't have to. And here's the thing, God knows we are to trust God with our fears, our insecurities, and our, uh, and our presumptions as he stands in judgment over them, over them, their fears, their insecurities, their judgments. Because he knows ours and he knows theirs. It's a piece of cake, right? I read this and I'm like, duh. Um. This, this chapter gives us almost all of the so what of the Christian life. 
how we relate to everyone, God, ourselves, other believers, non-believers. In fact, the only one that's left out of the mix here is, well, okay, well then how, do we re, uh, how are we supposed to relate to the government? Romans 13. It's right there. It's the next follow-up, all right? We don't have time to unpack how that has been totally misapplied, but uh, that's right there. Um, so this chapter gives us the so what. This is how we practice the Christian light. Life and, and spoiler alert, when we get to the end and, and we have a practice for this week, that's going to be it. I want you to read through this chapter every day this week. Let it pick you apart and build you back up. Let it, I'll get to the language here in, in, in just a minute. I think, Joel, I think you did imperatives and, di- and indicatives, right? Okay, so these are imperatives. These are what to do. Let the what to do pick you apart and drive you back to, okay, well then if I'm not doing what, I, what, I'm, what I'm called to do, Maybe I need to re-examine or recommit or remember who, who I am in the first place. So the indicatives do drive the imperatives, and I'll explain that in a minute, but, but the imperatives can also drive us back to the indicatives. Does that make sense? Okay. And if it doesn't, hopefully we'll get there. Um, but this is the kingdom. This is kingdom life. And ultimately, this is the fulfillment of who we were originally designed to be in Genesis 1. This is how we were to walk. Trust was, was meant to be easy. That's hard to think about. We are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, and this tells us what that looks like. But to understand what does it mean to actually be a living sacrifice, what, what, what does that mean? Well, you'll be interested to know that right before Romans chapter 12 comes Romans 12, uh, 1 through 11. And that is going to tell us, that, that is important. It's important not only to understand what Paul unpacks in his great theological treatise of Romans 1 through 11, but also, this is important every time we read the Bible, you need to know the Bible is written to a people in a place, a specific people in a specific place, in a spe- specific context. And before we pick up the Bible and say, what is it saying to me? We have to understand what's being made known to them. Then we can get to eventually what it says to me, okay? So Romans 1 through 11, Paul, uh, he tells these followers of Jesus in Rome that though they were dead in their sins and trespasses, that they have been made alive in Christ. Though what they inherited from their original father Adam in sin and rebellion and questioning and doubt and fear enter Christ through one man came obedience and righteousness And what they inherit through their father, Jesus, the second Adam, is reconciliation, is life, is child of the king. Here's what that doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean, okay, so you're saying they trusted Jesus so they'd go to heaven when they die. Real quick. I'm I'm not going to say that that's not true. Um, What I am going to say is that's not in Scripture. Uh, the, the full unpacking of that is, but it, it's a whole lot of, that, that's, that's, not, that's rarely the point of anything in Scripture. Um, it means that they had put their trust in this Jewish Messiah, their loyalties, their affections, that he had rescued them, that he had, um, and that he has transformed every relationship. He's transformed their relationship with God from, uh, and I, I, we can go through the values of, anybody remember what's the first value of refuge? Truth, good. The truth, what scripture reveals, what God has accomplished, um, 
and, and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has accomplished and transformed our relationship with God, which is over here, that know, be, and do, over here, which the second value is worship, right? Good, everybody. Um, and uh, worship, it's transformed our relationship with God from one of either angst or indifference or guilt and shame to one of awe and wonder and worship. It has transformed our relationship with each other, com- which is what? Community, right, that we are no longer comparing ourselves to one another. How much better am I than Joel and how much worse am I than Joel and how much better am I? Well, I might be worse than Joel, but at least I'm better than, right? And, and we kind of play that game. And um, to one of communion and community, love, genuine love, brotherly affection, outdoing one another, showing honor. And it transforms our relationship with ourselves from either one of pride this is a tricky one. Remember this value? Reflection. Yeah, it's not that we are reflective, though we kind of are, but we are image bearers of God. We reflect him. And so we no longer have to think more highly nor more lowly of ourselves than we ought. We can think of ourselves with sober judgment, that we are children of the king, and yet we are sinful and broken and need grace and redemption. And it transforms all of that then to transform our relationship with the world around us um, from one of judgment to one of proclaimer, herald, herald of the good news in both word and deed. Love, compassion, putting the image of God on display. To know Christ is to be made, made alive in him, to be reconciled to God. And if God is for you, who could possibly stand against you? So in other words, it is to know who you are. It's to know that in Christ you are a new creation. Now, this will come alive, I think, when we see the historical context of what's going on in Rome. Here's what's going on in Rome historically. You have these Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, you have these Gentile believers, and initially, when, when Christ is raised from the dead, Mark actually writes his gospel that that. Uh, the news of that makes its way into Rome among a lot of Jewish... Listen, the church in Rome was complex. Still is complex. Okay? It meant something to be a Roman citizen in that day. Um, and those identities were not easily dismissed or even put into second place. And that's been a struggle throughout history. Uh, over the summer, I read four different books, um, which is big for me because I'm, I'm not actually a, a very good reader. And I read four books, um, and, I, and along with like, going through the Old Testament, and, um, oh, okay, one of the books I listened to. Uh, but I read a book on shame by a guy named Kurt Thompson, which was fantastic. I read a book on addiction by a guy named Jay Stringer, both of them very, very helpful, um, and kind of ripping me apart from the inside and bearing, laying me bare uh, before God and everything else. And then I read through another book on, that walked through the Apostles' Creeds and the uh, Apostles' Creed and the history of um, Christian beliefs and how creeds have helped shape Christian beliefs. This is by an Anglican theologian named Michael Byrd, which you'll hear a lot more about that uh, later. Not today, but ongoing. Um, and I loved it. And then the other book that I listened to, and I listened to it because it was like 800 plus, plus pages long, uh, is a book, he's an atheist, um, but he advocates for Christian culture. Uh, he is British. His name is Tom Holland. He's not Spider-Man. And... Um, he wrote this book called Dominion, 
and it's over the history of Christianity, and he has no stake in, in the good and the bad. He doesn't care. He is not like, he doesn't cover over the good, the bad parts of Christian history. He just lays it all out. And it's predominantly the Western, the story of Western Christian history. So I'm dealing with this internal stuff, seeing shame, addiction, all those kind of things, and where are my temptations, and kind of wrestling with that internally. And then the struggle between this, what Christians have held to, and these beliefs that we've held to, uh, and, and these deep theological and doctrinal truths, and then how we've applied them in different times. And yet, within the rubble, within the ashes, there's some beautiful things that God works in, that God works through. 300 years after this letter to the followers of Jesus in Rome, this guy Constantine comes in to Rome, uh, and he enters Rome at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and he looks up in the sky, and according to Constantine, what he sees is the symbol of the cross and then the inscription, by this conquer. Now, you may go, well, yeah, okay, so that was, that was, he was just looking for political advantage, whatever. Listen, nobody in the history of leadership, especially in the ancient world, did anything that wasn't politically beneficial. Just so you know. Also, the symbol of the cross was not like we look at it today. That, for him to see a symbol of, and I'm not, I'm not validating, I'm just trying to give context. For him to see a symbol of, of the cross, of this Roman system of brutality in the sky, and, and this representing a god of one of these very minor groups of people in Rome, I, I don't know, this, supposedly this is where, where he had his conversion. And then he goes into Rome and he conquers. His smaller army conquers Rome. And in the same city where Nero would release dogs on Christians, Constantine would end state-sanctioned uh, persecution of Christians. And with that, by the end of his reign, it would actually become culturally beneficial to, to bear the kairos, the... the the cross, to bear the image of Jesus, to be called Christian, would actually become socially and culturally beneficial. Which, if you can think outside of our own day, was crazy. Was that good or was that bad? And here's what would happen. The loyalties of Romans... Uh, their, their loyalty would be constantly tested. Sometimes terribly intertwined between loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to Rome. Pope Gregory the Great, this is a couple hundred years later in the late 500s, a plague was decimating Rome and he would issue an edict of repentance. This is God's judgment because there's pride in, in the clergy so he would empty the clergy of prideful priests. And he had everybody repent. And not only was there, um, not only was there uh, a, a plague that was decimating Rome, but there was also a famine. And he began to feed the poor out of the church granaries. And uh, not just Christian poor, but all Roman poor. And there was a huge knock on Gregory that you have drained all of our finances. Gregory said we need to be humble 
that our conviction and our display of Jesus to the world needs to be out of humility and compassion and kindness and mercy and not out of coercion and not out of force. But something happened with Pope Gregory where they brought in the, uh, the, he combined kind of some state and, and church roles and he would also feed and pay some of the army and the army would go to battle over the Lombards of Italy who were kind of trying to come in and sack Rome. That's complicated. And then a couple of popes later, Boniface would use the army to force Jews to conversion, baptism, all throughout Rome. Missionaries from economically developed nations would be sent to impoverished countries where the God who rescues would be, and the God who feeds, and the God who sustains, and the God who brings life would be received with fervor and zeal, but then sometimes laws would change and financial needs from the homeland would, would come up and those would test priorities and the conviction of missionaries who had to choose between Jesus as king and the king of England or the king of France. Current day, we see a culture war uh, where patriotism is seen as the highest form of worship in one camp. The other camp seems to be pretty devoted to the whole point of salvation being complete self-autonomy. I was talking to a friend the other day and something that was interesting throughout Scripture, when you read, it really kind of comes to life. And again, it's complicated. We use the word slave and servant and most of us can only think of chattel slavery, which is American slavery, which is terrible. And you need to know that Scripture, all, that's man-stealing in Scripture, which is also always condemned. But the idea of slavery and servant always had a nuance. It, it always a different context. And we, if we can get out of our history, it was always unique and looked different. And, and Scripture never points to the ultimate freedom of man as self-autonomy. Think of Paul. What does he always say? The ultimate freedom of man, you will be, it's not, it's not if you will serve, it's who you will serve. To be slaves to Christ. That is ultimate freedom. Slaves to who you were made to be. And an issue that we're running into in, in, our, in our day is, is the glorification of, of self-autonomy, which is ultimately the worship of self, where we don't look outside of ourselves for objective truth. We have speak your truth, which an, another pastor friend said is, is it's, wouldn't even pass second grade grammar. Um, but we have, we have ceased to look outside. We now question any possible authority except ourselves. And I think it'd probably do, go, do us a bit of good to also question ourselves and our own authority. And this is not completely without reason. The church has contributed to this. Noted portions of the church have played a huge role. Uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, very vocal parts of the church governed by fear, created all of these enemies that we were to, they were out to destroy your faith. Your Harvard professor, which we don't have to worry about, your Wash U professor, atheist professor, is out to destroy your faith. Not only your faith, but all faith. And the agendas of all of these people. And so we kind of governed by fear. And not only that, but you were not to trust them, but you are to trust these leaders and this, these institutions. That's where you put your hope. And my goodness, over the last few years, we've seen these leaders and these institutions be exposed and their abuses and their 
corruption and the one institution we were told we could trust at all times, the church, over the last couple of years has just been exposed. And it's, it's complicated and it's nuanced. It's never just this black and white holding to the faithfulness of Scripture, which I do while also exposing issues of abuse and neglect and how the church has been abused. It's complicated. And our failures, and in those complexities and struggles and all of those things, our loyalties get tested. King Jesus or our tribe? Are we living sacrifices being guided and shaped by the imperatives of Scripture like, the Roman, like Romans 12 or do we take the well-worn path of least resistance? Um, all right. <sighs> I'm going to go quick. I'm going to try. So over the summer, one of the things the elders made me do is get off social media. This was good. I, I wasn't totally unwilling, but it was, I was grateful for their wisdom, and they changed my passwords, and um, that was helpful. You'll be happy to know that I do have good and faithful friends that would send me the important memes that I needed to see, um, but... Uh, they did all that. So most of it, I did not spend my summer being guided and governed by all the social positions that I had to take. Not that those are important, but we're not designed to worry about this much information that we have to take in. And that's a whole other thing. And, and I was grateful to be able to step out of that. And I laid bare before God and my family and the two loaders uh, and checkout lady in the lumber department at Lowe's. Um, and so uh, when I surfed the internet, I had to surf the internet differently because I couldn't do my default. And so one of the things I did was I looked up um, the songs that don't mean what you think they mean. Uh, and th so that kind of, that, that was a, a few weeks. My, my wife was like, honey, because uh, then I would play them on repeat. Um, just a couple. Uh, Hotel California, you might be delighted to know, is actually not about Satanism, or at least according to Glenn Fry, if you can trust him. Uh, but it's actually, um, it's actually about capitalism and materialism and the dangers of the clutches of stuff. And apparently there's a documentary on the Eagles on YouTube that I've not watched, but I've heard is really good. Um, and, and I, yeah. It, again, it's another religious dogma. We welcome those who agree with us. And listen, I can fall into some of these battles pretty easily. Um, my concern for the church is lest we get too easy and caught up in talking points. It's, le it's easy for our loyalties to fall to our tribe rather than to King Jesus. Just like with the Jews and Gentiles in Rome, it was easy for us to be more Roman than Christian. It was easy for them to be more followers of the Torah than it was followers of Jesus. That we, are, we should be shaped by Scripture more than influencers. It's easier to take a side than it is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. I want us as a church, I want us to be robust critical thinkers, renewing our mind um, and, and be critical thinkers with soft hearts who know God as well as he's revealed himself in scripture and that we can, uh, can apply those truths with compassion and wit and wisdom and use persuasion and humility and whenever possible live at peace with everyone while still making known the glorious riches of the grace of Jesus. And honestly, I think that's much bolder than, well, I don't care what anybody thinks or speak my truth. And unfortunately, 
for too many friends, for too many of my friends, they enter into this deconstruction. You see one of the, you see when we get caught up in the complexities and the history and some of the ugly things, especially of God's people, we're tempted to just cancel the whole thing instead of actually press in to say, okay, but what do I, am I really believing the core and the crux of what I've said I believe? Have I really applied the truth that I believe is being conveyed through scripture? That I could truly be loved and forgiven? That I have been made alive in Christ? A message from a dear friend that Allison and I love very much, um, who they went through a very, very thorough deconversion. And it broke us both. But one of the things that she said in a message to me was, she said, what is so relieving and what feels so good these days is that I don't have to judge anybody anymore. Listen, I get that. Man, I get it. I get it. I get it. That's appealing to me. But if we press in, we see, the reality is that's just not true. Now we get to judge people that we don't mind at all judging. Right? It's not that we don't judge people anymore. Now it's just easier to judge somebody else. Listen, the greatest freeing, freedom that you can ever have is that there is one that has taken the judgment on our behalf. And the longer I go, and the longer I wrestle with these things, and the longer I walk in culture, the greater freedom I feel that Jesus will stand in judgment over the whole earth, and I am not Jesus. Praise him. Amen. Second verse is even better than the first, I think, of the song. There's something amiss. I'm being insincere. I love that he's just like, in fact, I don't mean any of this. Still, my confession draws you near. To confuse the issue, I'll refer to familiar heroes from long ago. No matter how much Peter loved her, what made the pan refuse to grow is that the hook brings you back. Um, Said I've spent most of my sabbatical. I'm, I am including a lot of illustrations. I promise next week will be shorter. I just got to get all these out. All right. I spent most of my sabbatical working in our backyard, and uh, we, uh, like a year and a half ago, we got an above-ground pool, and then they installed it in May, and then I spent the rest of the time building around that. While well, that stupid thing drives me crazy. If you're considering, talk to me first. And then apparently in the summer or in the winter, I'm going to have to get my chemistry degree. Um, Abraham Heschel once said that if you labor with your hands, you should Sabbath with your mind, and if you labor with your mind, you should Sabbath with your hands. My joke has been that I'm about Sabbathed out. Um, but one day I had to wait on a few things, and I, didn't, I got really bad at waiting on things. Um, I got really bad at waiting. I wanted to get projects done. And, uh, and so um, I had to wait on something, and, and Allison and I... Allison told me to get out of the house and go somewhere. Not in a mean way, in a, in a freeing way. You just go somewhere. Don't sit around here and, and do it. And I had a particularly hard morning. I'd woken up with just all kinds of shame and anxiety about what needed to be done. Uh, I had, in a matter of minutes, undone the entire reason for my existence. And, I mean, has anybody had those mornings? Okay. I was having one of those. And um, she said, you know, go somewhere. And so I got out of the house um, and if those aren't interrupted, they can, they can spiral and get bad. 
pretty quick. And I got out of the house and everything in me wanted to escape. All of the bad habits, all of the easy paths of least resistance, distraction, give me a phone, give me YouTube, give me a, that stupid golf game on my iPad that the putting is horrible on, uh, give me the social media passwords back, give me a bacon cheeseburger, give me a beer, give me my addictions, give me something, and I know, I know, I know they don't actually work, and in fact, all they do is just compound the shame that's already building up behind me, but man, they are the easy way out, right? I know none of you deal with this. And I fought it, and I fought it, and everything in me, I just wanted to go back to bad habits. And what had been working on me and some conversations with friends and some of the stuff that I was reading, distraction is so easy. Maturity, trust, vulnerability, actually believing that Jesus meant what he said and that I am loved and forgiven and a child of God, and Jesus doesn't expect me to hide this, but to actually bring it to him and meet him there, and he's got a table, he's got a seat pulled up to the table ready to sit down, and he's not saying you should feel bad about wanting those things. He's like, why don't you come to me? That's, that's hard. Trust is not our default. Being a living sacrifice is hard. It takes intentionality. It takes seeing through what's easy. It takes, especially in moments like that, it takes unearthing my shame, my guilt, my insecurities, my other loyalties. It takes dealing with my issues of false intimacy, my shortcut solutions, seeing, admitting my, all of my self-justifications, and actually trusting Jesus, the thing that I preach about every week. To meet me, to meet us, to believe that he is better than escape and in him is life. And to actually believe that he loves me and delights with great joy when I don't run away but actually come before him with all this crap. Believing that I have been raised to walk in the newness of life, that my story is also complex and broken, but it's a microcosm of this grand story of redemption for all people, not just certain people, all people who have trusted Jesus as king and are trying to live out this new reality this new kingdom that has been ushered in, that is greater than Rome, that is greater than the Western world, that is greater than America and the American dream, and that is greater than my temptations to hide and distract. Talking points are easy. Catchphrases are easy. Trust Jesus so you go to heaven when you die so you can be a Christian and not really a follower of Jesus. That's pretty easy. Escape is easy. Distraction, addiction are easy. Following Jesus is hard. Pete Scazzaro once said, you can be a Christian for 20 years or you can be a Christian for one year 20 times. You remember the story of Peter Pan? It's pretty racist now. <laughs> but Peter Pan lived in the existence of perpetual adolescence, right? The cat and mouse game. He knew it. He played it well, and then all of a sudden, enter Wendy. And he could stay with Wendy, but that would require something. That would require sacrifice. It requires vulnerability. It's hard. It requires growing up and taking responsibility, being let down, hurts and wounds. It's love. It's life. But you have to leave childhood. No matter how much Peter loved Wendy, the greater pull was perpetual childhood playing games, taglines and talking points. What made the pan refuse to grow, he knew what was easy, 
but he didn't know what was good. The hook brings you back. What we know is what's familiar doesn't take much trust and vulnerability. These, these paths are well trod, at least they are for me. Is God safe? No, but he is good. Refuge. In our day, I, I'll tell you all day, I, I, stay off social media, don't go to fast food. I'll give you all the principles that I don't adhere to myself. Listen, our loyalties are going to be tested. We're going to be judged by tribes. Eventually, we'll be canceled by somebody or everybody, but Jesus is good. He has made us alive. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you want to know more, <clears throat> and you actually want to go, okay, well, tell me about this hard way <laughs> that leads to life. Uh, there's, I think there's a section on the app. Fill that out. Um, if you want to catch me afterwards and talk more, what, what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? What, is it, what does it mean that my, these are my supreme loyalties and my affection? And how do I do that? What does that look like? Talk to me. If you really want to be daring, talk to the person next to you. And then have them explain to you what does it mean to actually trust Christ as king. For those of us that are followers of Jesus trying to live this out, who profess Jesus as Lord. This week, let's practice being living sacrifices. I want you to read through Romans 12 over and over again. Let it reveal stuff. Let re-examine your loyalties, the indicatives. Where are you thriving? Where do you look at that and find joy? Where do you see other people that thrive in areas that you don't and go, you know what, I'm I want to be excited for those people. Instead of feeling like crushed by guilt or like, well, they're just doing that. We, what we do, what I do is better. Let it, let it mess with you a little bit there. Have conversations with what you think it looks like, specifically in this area or this area. What does it look like to follow Jesus in some of these, uh, in some of these areas of what Paul is saying? Let Scripture interpret you. Let it reveal where our loyalties are, where they're off, where they're good, and let it drive us to remember anew what it is to be made alive in Christ and then what it is to then walk that out and follow him and be the people of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for loving your church, for long-suffering, because oh, I've only been a parent for 20 years and I get, I I would not do as well as you have done with your church in guiding and loving with patience and grace and we are a long line of messed up people. And that doesn't excuse things. Um, but it should remind us that our hope is in Christ alone. And we walk that out with each other. We walk that out with the world around us with grace and mercy and compassion. We let that shape us, refine us, teach us. So I pray this morning um, that you would take your word from Romans 12, that you would shape us, call us to delight in you, renew our faith and hope in you, bring people to yourself, Help us to be overwhelmed and overjoyed that you would show mercy 
to someone like me. I ask that you would do all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.